Hi guys, and welcome to a one-off How to Wow pop-up episode starring Piers Morgan talking to me about his brand new book, Wake Up, Why the World Has Gone Nuts. It's a conversation we had on the radio that even people who thought they couldn't stand him seem to love. So I thought I'd put it on here. Enjoy, folks. Enjoy. And this super special episode is brought to you in association with our friends at Athletic Greens. Every morning, Tash, my wife and I go scoop da loop with one heap scoopful of this all-round nutritional insurance, which is made up of no less than 75 vitamins, minerals and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood, scientifically researched and blended together to support and improve energy, recovery, immunity and digestion. Deep seaweed green, like nature itself. This eye candy concoction takes just a few seconds, like no more than five or six. Okay, ten tops. To prepare and taste absolutely gorgeous. And so, here's how you can get yours. Simply visit athleticgreens.com slash howtowow and join health experts, athletes and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash howtowow. Okay, and don't forget slash howtowow because this will entitle you to the special deal Athletic Greens have given howtowow listeners. A free year's supply of vitamin D and five travel-free packs today to take with you on the go. Once again, Athletic greens.com slash don't forget how to wow okay and now cue the conversation Piers Morgan was going to be here he's definitely in the building um because I can tell because his old friends who used to work with him and look they still like him he, knows all the bodies he does he <laughs> does I don't want him anywhere near this all right okay great well Piers is here now let's just get straight into this uh Dapper Dave over to you for the big intro uh, according to him being woke is a joke and we need a decent lashing of liberalism his new book wake up why the world has gone nuts is out today so without further ado batten down the hatches snowflakes beware it's the masterful media marmite Piers Morgan Good morning, Piers. <laughs> Good morning, chaps. Lovely right. to see you. Nice to see you. Um, I've been promising the listeners that I'm going to try and get the the, the nice Piers, the lovable Piers, the funny Piers, the charming Piers, the Piers that I know and love. Um, well, how do you feel about that? Who is that guy? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I'd love to do that because there's so much serious stuff that's been raging all year and I've been finding myself getting so angry about stuff connected to the pandemic and to world leaders and Trump and Boris and all this. It would actually be quite nice to talk about stuff. Okay. Slightly uplift people. Because I've encouraged people to buy your book even if they don't like you, you know, because it's really important to, to listen and to read and to watch things from people who you don't agree with because there's not enough of that going on nowadays. Um, and I've said to people, you know, even if you you don't want to give Piers Morgan any money or anybody to do with him, <laughs> i.e. his publishers. Go to a bookshop and re- just read the intro to this book. The intro to this book is better than most books, and I'm not blowing oh, smoke up, you. but it's really good. And also the first two pages of the intro are like an intro to the intro, yeah. which is about the world going nuts. Yeah. So, so many questions, Piers. Here we go. Um, the world's always been nuts. Yeah. You sound like you're surprised by this, but, <laughs> but it's been like that for tens of thousands of years. It has. What has concerned me about the way uh, liberalism has gone, and I I identify as a liberal. You know, I'm, I've edited the Daily Mirror for 10 years. Dun, dun, dun. My, my instinctive gut feel to stuff is, is liberal. And what's really struck me is, of course, the, on the right, the liberals scream about the right-wingers and say they're all intransigent, self-righteous, they think they know best and so on. So I wasn't going to target them because that's a familiar battleground and that's been raging now on social media for years. What's more interesting to me is what's happened to liberals and especially this woke 
element of the liberal crowd. And it's become, in my view, really weird and insidious and antithetical to liberalism. And I explain in the book in that intro the history of liberalism and what it really should be about. It should be about fairness and tolerance, a desire to have democratic debate, yeah. a desire to be able to sit opposite somebody, hear a view you completely disagree with, maybe even find offensive, but actually tolerate somebody's right to have a different opinion and maybe engage in a debate where you both learn something and at the end of it reach points of consensus agree to disagree about other stuff and go down the pub and have a pint that's gone in oh, this gone. country it's gone completely um, i mean lots of people say you add fuel to that fire i say it myself about myself in the book I've, there's no question when you've got you know, i've got 7.6 million twitter followers not that i'm counting obviously it's not about size <laughs> although it is actually about size um but i when you've got that sort of platform and to put it in perspective when i left the mirror in 2004 they had about two and a half million readers so it's a gigantic platform and sometimes you can forget that and you can pile in on these culture war stuff and before you know it you're fueling the fire and i've definitely done that um it's really a clarion call to all liberals including myself to say can't we just now just reset the pandemic yeah surely will reset many many things for many people uh -huh. in different ways and I think liberals, and especially woke liberals, have got to ask themselves whether cancel culture, which is their preferred mechanism for shouting people down, is to cancel them, ruin their lives, end their jobs, and so on. Is that liberal? Is right. that actually what liberalism is? So you also talk about the fact that when you contemplated writing this book, you thought this could get me cancelled. Um, do, you, do you consider yourself to have been cancelled in America? And do you really fear ever being cancelled anyhow? And. Uh, I think probably, honestly, no. America was an interesting case. I did uh, three and a half years at CNN. I did over 1,300 shows there. Fantastic experience. Interviewed everybody I could possibly wish to interview. But in the last year, I got very passionate and animated about gun control. And there's no doubt, you know, more than half of CNN's viewers supported having guns and the right to bear arms. And so it became this, you know, I remember uh, Jay Leno, who you will know well, Chris, was a fantastic late night host for many, many years on The Tonight Show there. And he took me aside when I went on the show about this. And he said, you know, Piers, the trouble with your position about guns is this. It's a bit like you going to Germany and telling them they can't speed on the autobahn. You know, the smart crowd will say he's got a point. Most Germans will go, we don't want to hear that from you. And we definitely don't want to hear it from that accent. And he said, Americans... <laughs> believe in the right to bear arms, yeah. the vast majority. They want, to, they want to have a gun. They don't want to hear a Brit, given that they drove the Brits out of the whole country with guns, mm. tell them they have to give up their guns. So I think it became a bit of a culture clash with me at CNN. But there was logic behind that, so why did you crack on with it? I, I did crack on with it, but I probably cracked on with it to a slightly boring extent for constituent yeah. CNN viewers. That's the thing, isn't it? Uh, in, in the end, you can keep telling them they're yeah. wrong. But actually, I also reflect in the book that... I've waged a lot of campaigns, you know, I've, at the Daily Mirror, passionate long campaign against the Iraq war in America, against uh, the, the gun culture. On a, on a lesser level, Arsene Wenger has a book out this week and I campaigned to get him out of his job at Arsenal, you know, getting Kevin Peterson back in the England cricket team. I've campaigned against vegan sausage rolls. Um, the one thing I've learned about all my campaigns, I realised when I wrote the book, is I've never won any of them. And uh, the louder I've shouted and the more self-righteous I've become about my campaigns, the less the people on the other side have wanted to listen to yeah. me. Well, there's a great, there's, I love it. There's a bit of philosophy about that. And they say, you know, if you want your story to have, 
have a happy ending. It's not you can't. It's not about you deciding um, how to end it. It's about deciding when to end it, mm. and when is more important than how when it comes to things. Because in the end, Arsene, Arsene Wenger has left Arsenal. So if, yeah. you, if, if you kept on going on about anything for long enough, it probably will. And happen. the Iraq War, most people accept now, was a total disaster. Yeah. So it wasn't like I was wrong with any of these campaigns. Yeah, yeah. It's just actually, I look at Marcus Rashford in the book, who I think has been an extraordinary character this year, and I look at him and I think, my he he affected change for one point five million kids right on the poverty line in this country. He got them fed and he did it in about 36 hours. He got a a U-turn on government policy, but he did it by being very polite and respectful and not taking any partisan political position and certainly not shouting at anybody. And that was a bit of an interesting thing to watch from somebody like me who obviously had spent most of the year gunning for government ministers. Yeah, it's really, really, it's so interesting because the whole thing about about America and gun control with you is that you, that was a very sort of British tabloid newspaper editor mentality you used on TV in America. So it was you it was a different kind of currency that you were applying there. But what's also interesting but I think is that when people get passionate, it's fantastic for a bit, mm. but then it actually gets really boring. Yeah, it can do. Yeah. So, and so what you need to do then is sort of introduce some levity into it which is what I was thinking about our, our conversation this morning because you're really interesting and you know but you're also really really funny you know and I think that when people and I've been guilty of this myself and I bear it in mind all the time especially on this program is that you know you you want to say something you go da, da, da. yeah but you've got it every four or five minutes literally you mm. know it's like um what they used to do at the BBC, you know, positive discrimination. Yeah. So every five minutes, even if it's not time for a joke, you've got to stick a joke in. Yeah. It just breaks the whole thing but up. But I believe that definitely on Good Morning Britain, where we had two and a half hours, and, you know, you've done breakfast stuff for donkey's ears and a, the master, um, I find that you've got to bring in levity. You know, we have lots of serious bits, obviously. It's a very serious year. Yeah. Uh, and you've got a big duty of care and responsibility to your viewers who really are worried and want information. But at the same time, they also want to have a bit of a laugh, a bit of fun, a bit of escapism. Yeah. And we try and combine all that and I think the days we get it right are when we have a good balance of just good old-fashioned fun you know but the moment yesterday with Susanna Reeve where we sort of bill ourselves as the new moonlighting couple you know where everyone's <laughs> waiting everyone's waiting for the big the way, for the first TV right kiss. on message with the demographic though. yeah <laughs> so everyone's waiting for the first TV kiss and of course there's this hilarious situation in in our studio where we're actually two meters apart I know. but we now have this trick uh, camera work which makes it look like we're right next to each other and to show people how it really worked we moved in yesterday for the moonlight lighting moment the yep. kiss yeah, yeah. and of course we were actually two meters apart but it was fun and everyone loved that because it gave them a little bit of, of something completely unconnected with anything to do with the hellish pandemic well it's what phil and holly do in the morning on itv yeah. isn't it you know it's it's the perfect combination because we all want a bit of light we all want a bit of shade we all want a bit of covid we all want a bit of comedy well because I, I i don't watch your show because i'm doing this show mm. uh, i wish i did have time to watch your show because uh, I, but I i hear it's amazingly compelling and i'm sure that's the truth but yesterday when i saw clips of that i thought you were doing um you were aping dominic west the dominic oh, west right, story no. <laughs> and I Oh, they're onto this one, are they? So, so you're Lily, you're Dominic, but it was something completely. It was about social distancing. It was actually. See, there you go. The danger well, of social media. Well, it was quite funny because I'd had dinner with Jake Wood from EastEnders, and he was telling me hilarious stories about how on the set of EastEnders now, it's got to the stage where they kiss each other through perspex screens, right. but for the real close-ups, they're now bringing in the real-life partners of the stars, and they do the actual kissing. Sometimes, in his case, the stand-in, who's the real-life partner of of the woman he has to kiss 
Hello. Someone, I mean, it's all friends just to write. Morning, well, Rebecca. You, you could try a kiss through the through nine inches of glass. Should we kiss through some perspex? <laughs> and uh, but it was it was very uh, fun to me that he said that literally his his kissing partner in the show, her real partner's coming in and wearing a bald wig <laughs> for the close-ups. I mean, these are crazy times. And if you can't laugh at that, then you're taking everything a little too serious. Have you done the um, how effective are masks compared to trousers story? Have you heard that one? No. So so what they've done, this is this right up your street, you should do this next week. So they've said, you know, if if masks are that effective where COVID is concerned, how come you can still smell farts through trousers? <laughs> and they've done a scientific... They've analysed the particles of a fart compared to the particles of COVID. And they explained, well, this is... And there's a reason for it. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a reason for it. It's very... Uh... It's, a, it's a fact, the fact that the fart particles are so much smaller than COVID particles, so they can get through materially. Is that true? Yeah, completely That's true. A fantastic yeah, story. I know, I know, it's a great story. Uh, um, let's talk about COVID a bit, right? So... Mm. Uh, newest theory I've heard uh, as of yesterday is that, and it's only a theory, it's only, it's only a school of thought, and nobody's saying it's right or wrong, is that if you look at pandemics historically, back to the Spanish flu and the ones in between, they all last about 18 months. Yeah. And this was just always going to last about 18 months. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's a merit to that. I mean, the difference between this situation and the last big pandemic in, in 1918 was that then people weren't flying around so much and yeah. transmitting it from country to country. Um, but there's a logic to thinking that within two years maximum, this blows itself out. I mean, I think what's really important is that we all now basically admit we don't know anything. Uh, everyone's turned into an expert epidemiologist. Even the epidemiologists who are experts don't agree with each other. Yeah. So the idea that anyone can say with absolute certainty this course of events is the right one, this is wrong. What you can do, you can hold a government to scrutiny over every single decision and you can compare uniquely, in this case, all around the world and you can see other countries and see how they've handled it and you can compare. And by that comparison, as I keep telling people, look, you can spin it any way you like, but we have the worst death toll in Europe and we have the worst economic meltdown in Europe. These are two undeniable facts. You don't have to be on the left or right tribe to be able to agree we've had a massively bad pandemic so yeah. far. And as we make decisions now, which are huge decisions, another lockdown, do we do it regionally, nationally, whatever, we are trusting the same group of people. And that's what concerns me about this. I, I, I think trust in this government and in Boris Johnson and in Matt Hancock and others is at an all-time low. And that concerns me about the public's willingness to actually listen to anything they say they've got to do. But so I was listening to something yesterday about science and about the fact that you know scientists never deal in fact because they they don't they they think the the the, the scariest f word in the English language to a scientist is fact mm. because they don't prove facts they try and eliminate doubt and um, the best they can ever do is make something as least as least doubtful as it can possibly be so the whole that's why it's all confusing in the first we place. we had a, a brilliant scientist on yesterday he's, he's one of the top oncologists in the country he's actually saved a member of my family's life in the last year in a miraculous way from stage four cancer to saving his life. So I know how good he is. And he argued blind, blindly against any form of lockdown and gave a very compelling set of reasons why. Then we had two other scientists with him who were equally eminent in their fields, arguing that everything he just said was completely wrong. So the idea that people on Twitter know more than any of these people <laughs> is obviously ridiculous. Okay. And yet every day I get these you know, amateur epidemiologists informing me of their latest theory. The truth is, I think we just have to accept things are going to be rough and as you said at the start of this little uh, bit of chat probably for a total of 18 months to two years and then one of a variety of things may happen we may get a vaccine 
although we never got one for HIV and we've never had one for any coronavirus. But the, the signs are that because of the concerted global effort to get one, we may get lucky and have one. Or more likely, I think, that may come first is we get drugs that stop people dying, as we did with HIV. And again, because every scientist in the world is trying to crack the same thing, we're already seeing drugs now having a material effect on stopping a lot of people from dying. That seems to me a more likely scenario. See, now this is the peers, this is the peers I know. How does it feel to be this peers on the radio? <laughs> As opposed to what peers? You know, the, the performing peers. <laughs> well, I do think we're all performing no, seals to I a certain mean, degree. It's not, it's not an attack, it's just yeah. an observation. That's I, I mean, I, it's funny, when I, in the book, I do deliberately, in the early part of the book, I put in stuff that I know makes me look ridiculous. And I do it because it's done in diary form through this unbelievable year. Could have done 10 volumes of diaries. And I deliberately left the stuff in, and my publisher was like, are you sure you want to do that? I said, well, yes, because it makes me look a, a, a sort of buffoon, panto-villain yeah, yeah. character. It's a three-act play, your book. Yeah, and it's and it's sort of my own evolution through the pandemic, and, you know, it's work in progress. I still have lapses where I get utterly enraged by something utterly trivial. Mm. Uh, but a central plank of the book away from the pandemic is about this this woke culture, and I genuinely do feel that that attack on our ability to exercise our right to freedom of speech and expression is a serious thing. And that actually long term, if we don't deal with it and tackle it head on and we end up having a small but very aggressive and noisy group of people on Twitter basically deciding how we all think, act, behave, the TV we're allowed to watch, the movies that are acceptable, the hairstyles we can have, the clothes you can wear on Halloween, you name it, they want to cancel people. They're offended by all of it. Yeah. And at what point do we say... In a tolerant democratic society, especially a British society with our sense of humour, and I use the yardstick in the book, I said, if you can't go to a seaside resort and look at the saucy postcards and <laughs> chuckle, there's something wrong with you. And yet I can tell you there's a lot of people who yeah, will refuse to laugh. You don't have to tell me. Um, so are you in rage rehab then? <laughs> yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, I, I definitely have an ability to completely lose it. Uh, on a regular basis, which some people find compelling. Do you know when you're Other losing it? Other people find ridiculous. I can feel it bubbling up, yeah. Now are you getting more aware it's of it? It's normally... I can tell you what it is. It, Susanna will tell you it's entirely dependent on how much sleep I've had the night before. Right. If I arrive in the pre-show briefing around 5.15, 5.30, and I look exhausted, she knows she's in for a relatively calm show. Oh, really? Yeah. However, if I've had a really good sleep and I'm bouncing off the walls, yeah. like flicking through the papers, ranting and raving, she knows the nation is in for a very, very long three hours. OK, in three weeks' time today, we'll have a US election. Who's going to win it? Really interesting question. Last time, everyone assumed Hillary would win in this country, certainly. And I consistently said for months, I think Trump's going to win because I'd been filming crime documentaries down in middle America and I could feel the Trump train was just steaming. And there was a visceral dislike and hatred in many parts of America for Hillary Clinton. And Trump won. And again, all the woke liberals on Twitter were like, how the hell did this happen? My echo chamber said this was impossible. This time is more complicated because I think they have a better candidate, certainly for the middle American vote in Joe Biden. And Trump appears to be spiralling out of control. He's had a horrific year in his handling of the pandemic. I think he had a horrific uh, response to the George Floyd uh, killing, which should have been a moment for him to unite the country. Instead, he just poured uh, fuel all over the flames. Um, so I think he's had a terrible year, but I'd never underestimate Trump. What he is is a showman. He's a brilliant campaigner. We know that from last time. And he's not going to go down without a fight. What worries me more is that we may not know 
who has actually won this election for quite a long time because of the mail order uh, situation where predominantly Democrats will stay at home because they don't want to go and get the coronavirus by voting in person. So millions of Democrats, more than usual, are going to vote in the mail and they can vote right up to the day of the election. The Republicans, conversely, because Trump's told them the coronavirus has nothing to worry about, they'll all go and vote in person. So you could have a situation where Trump looks like he's won on the night, but yeah. millions of votes haven't been counted. And you could see Biden then surge past him. And what's that going to do? I mean, can you imagine if Trump looks like he's won and then a week later looks like he's lost? And we've been through all this, of course, with uh, the Al Gore uh, fiasco with George Bush. Um, I think it could be a... a, a constitutional crisis like we've never seen. Who do you think is going to win? I think Joe Biden's going to win. Right. And now they both contacted you. You know them both. Mm. Uh, you've had phone conversations with them. You've famously... Were you friends with Trump? Are you now an ex-friend with Trump? What was the friendliest, friendly thing you did with Trump yeah, that you, Trump that you put, can tell us about? Well, I knew Trump when I, I took part. He actually he came on uh, as a guest on America's Got Talent in 2006. And I immediately liked him. I just thought he was a, a great character. And we had a good laugh. And he was actually really good fun. And he talked to the judges. We had, a, had fun with him. Then I took part in uh, Celebrity Apprentice, the first Celebrity Apprentice in America. Because he'd done the, the regular Joe one and then he wanted to have stars do it. And I, at that time, qualified as a star. So I was allowed to do it and <laughs> I ended up winning it. And, and the interesting thing about it was I won it because I read The Art of the Deal, his best-selling book, the best-selling book that's ever been written. And it almost was, actually. And it's a brilliant book, hilarious and funny and very good business advice in many ways. One thing he is, he's a good businessman. And I read it and I basically morphed into Trump for the, for the, the filming. And I would talk, I would say stuff to him in the boardroom and I'd make these big pronouncements about winning and business. And he'd go, that's, I completely agree. And I thought, well, yeah, well, you would do. You wrote it. <laughs> He'd forgotten. Um, so I played or maybe him. he didn't. Yeah, I basically sort of played him. I played the Trump role. And, the um, Trump card. And, and yeah, and in the, in the live finale, he ended up actually saying something like, uh, you know, Piers, you're, you're arrogant, you're obnoxious, you're, you're possibly evil, I don't know, he said, but you beat the hell out of everyone and you're celebrity president. I thought, and when he won the presidency, I sent him a note saying, you know what, Donald, you're, you're arrogant, you're obnoxious, you're possibly evil, I don't know, but you beat the hell out of everyone. Yes, and the president of the United States. So when, when did you last talk to him? I last had an exchange with him because obviously I wrote a co I've been very savage about him all year in my columns and on air. And I wrote a column after he suggested we all inject ourselves with bleach to combat coronavirus. And I completely lost it and just thought this was so utterly reckless and stupid of the president of the United States to use his gargantuan platform to basically help kill people. And I did a column and the headline was, and I won't say the word, but it was, shut the bleep up, Mr. Yeah. President, your reckless back bleep crazy ideas are going to kill Americans. And he unfollowed me on Twitter overnight, which is no small thing because he only has he only follows 46 accounts of which most are his family or his businesses. I was the only Brit and about one of only, I think, 10 non-family members. So this was quite a big moment. And I assume maybe our, our friendship was irreparably damaged. And then recently I, I had a, I've got a friend who works at the White House. And um, when he came out with that, because he can be very funny, Trump, you know, indisputably, he says stuff and you can laugh out loud. A lot of stand-up comedians who, who are quite revered say, you know, he's a funny guy. Yeah, and his timing's great. So the, and I thought a classic example was when he was asked recently about Meghan Markle and Harry, Prince Harry basically suggesting everyone should vote for Biden in America. And he said, you know, I just want to say, you know, Prince Harry, he said, uh, I just want to wish him good luck. Yeah, good luck with that And one. then he paused because yeah. he's going to need yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And I just sent an email to my friend at the wire. I said, can you just tell him? I said, that, immediately everything else, that made me laugh out loud. 
and back came the response, your email just made him laugh out loud. So I think there's hope for the friendship. So so was there a moment, did you back off for a while because you thought, yeah, I do know him, I've said I know him, you know, and then did something, was there a tipping point you thought, I've got to turn now, I've yeah. literally got to turn? The tipping point was pretty quickly into the pandemic. Right. I mean, again, in the book, because it's in diary format, it's very interesting what I was thinking back in January. Mm. In January, the economy was roaring in America, job numbers, record numbers of, of employment, uh, He'd taken out two terror leaders, one in Iran and one Baghdadi, leader of ISIS. He was forging peace with a lot of traditional American enemies like Russia and North Korea. He hadn't gone to war anywhere, which, again, I say to liberals, he's going to be fair-minded. He's a Republican president who hasn't gone to war anywhere. At least give him a nod for some of this stuff. But, of course, they couldn't. Um, I, I concluded in, at the end of January, you know, Trump's heading for a, a massive re-election. Yeah. And I really would have put my house on it. Now I think it's very different. You know, in the end, leaders get tested by cataclysmic events and Boris Johnson and uh, Donald Trump I'm afraid and I know I've known them both I've known Boris even longer than I've known Donald Trump but I think they've been found severely wanting because what a pandemic needs actually is somebody like Angela Merkel in yeah. Germany where a pragmatist a pragmatist someone with a scientific background who took it from the very start very seriously but who'd also prepared her country so that their testing regime was already up and running and incredibly efficient so when we were testing six seven thousand a day they were testing a hundred thousand a day and that enabled them to get on top of this and that's the problem we face now people talk about the lockdown and the world health organization said they're not the answer but they also said the, the only reason for a lockdown is if you haven't got a good testing system and it buys you the time to set one up. Our testing system is not working. And only one in five people you should self-isolate are self-isolating. So there's personal accountability and responsibility of individuals not doing what they should be doing and also government failure to have a testing system that actually works. You're so well informed in all this. Um, do you want to be his friend again? Trump. Yeah. I listen, I've got friends with far more extreme views than Donald Trump. I've got family members who have far more extreme Do you views miss his than friendship? Trump. I like Trump personally. I always liked him. And I'll tell you the thing about Trump, which one of the reasons I Do like Do you love him. him? I didn't love him. Okay. No, let's not get too let's not get too romantic here. Uh, but I do remember when I left CNN and I came back here and I can count on one hand the number of people in America of any position of authority who bothered to contact me. Trump did regularly. He must have rung me three or four times in a couple of months just to say, how's it going? What are you up to? Anything I can do to help you? And I remember I, I did a deal to write columns for the Daily Mail and it appeared in the New York Post. And he, I, it, what he does when he, when, he writes, when he emails you, he gets one of his assistants to print out the piece and he writes with his big Sharpie little notes on the, on the stuff. And he just wrote, I'm so proud of you, my champ, Donald, you know. It's just an unusual thing to do, and he does it all the time. I've probably got 50 notes like that from him. So the reason I, I'm happy to stay friendly with Trump is he's actually been good to me over the years. And even when I was hammering him over the pandemic, we could still have a moment to have a laugh about Prince Harry and good luck to him. You see, what I find interesting about him, and there's, what, there's somebody in our game that was like this and remains like this, and I won't say who it is, but it's somebody who does a similar job to what you and I do. Mm. Um, I've never seen them laugh, ever. Right. And you, you, Trump is funny sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes he's really not funny at all. And he couldn't be more offensive. But I've never seen him laugh since he's been president. And I've watched, I've watched everything he ever does. And he's never laughed once. That's an extraordinary thing for a human being not to do. If you actually do. watch Trump's rallies, on one level, they're quite scary. I get it if you hate him and you think it. But actually, he's just a showman. And they can be very funny, some of the stuff he but comes But he doesn't with. laugh, though. 
Oh, he can laugh, Trump. Yeah, right. Okay. Oh, he can laugh. Okay. Yeah. Trump, right. Trump can laugh. I mean, he. I used. To, we have a, a lot of laughs. I mean, the Apprentice Boardroom. I was there for three hours a night for six weeks. Yeah. People can't hide what they're like in that environment. He showed a lot more empathy in that boardroom than I've ever seen him show as president. I don't know why he feels empathy's weakness. He seems to think he has to be the strong man. I think a little bit of empathy, certainly after what happened with George Floyd, would have gone an awful long way yeah. to healing some It was a no-brainer, really, that, wasn't it? You would have thought so. Yeah. But, but Trump sees all that as weakness. He sees, whereas conversely, Joe Biden is a man literally with empathy through every pore of his body because he's been through such utter tragedy. You know, this is a man who, when he was 30 and was about to become a senator, his wife and uh, baby daughter were killed in a car crash. His two sons survived. And then five years ago, his beloved son, Bo, who I knew really well and used to come on my CNN show a lot as a, as a commentator, and he'd been everything. He'd been a war hero in Iraq. He'd been an attorney general, an incredibly smart lawyer, in a lovely family. He was heading on a trajectory, I felt, to potentially become a president one day. And I wrote a column when he died, of a, he had a brain cancer. And I wrote a column saying, if Bo Biden is the best president, America will now sadly never know it had. And uh, between writing it and the funeral, which was uh, about two or three days later, I got a, a phone call out of the blue from Joe Biden, who I'd never met, never spoken to. I'd met his wife and I'd interviewed Bo many, many times. And he said, I'm just ringing you because I thought if I wrote to you, you wouldn't understand uh, what this meant to me and my family, but we've all read your column twice. And I just want to say to you, what, on a personal level, thank you for what you said about Bo, because it really it, it moved all of us enormously. And we got talking, and I said to him, I've just been so struck by your strength this week, because I know what happened to you before. And as a father of four kids, I can't think of anything worse. And it's happened to you twice now, and you lost a wife. I said, how, how, how do you deal with this? And he paused and he said, you know something? He said, there's a, there's a picture on my desk right now as I'm talking to you. He was vice president at the time to Obama. And he said, the, it's Hagar the Horrible. And it's a cartoon strip my father sent me. And it's in two parts. And the first part, Hagar is looking up at the, it's a tumultuous, stormy seas. And he's in his boat and he's got his trident. And he's like, he thinks he's going to, everything's going wrong. And he shouts up at the gods, why me? And the second half of the cartoon has the gods shouting back, why not you? And he said, when I got it, I was actually quite annoyed with my father. I thought he'd just been insensitive. But over time, I've really understood what he was saying, which is you cannot rationalise this kind of thing. And if you can't rationalise it, you, you mustn't expend too much energy trying because it will be a waste of that energy. And we had a long chat. We moved into talking about gun control and all this kind of thing. And at the end, actually, he said to me, I, I just want to let you know I owe you one. And, don't, and please don't hesitate to call me in, which I will be reminding him if he wins the presidency. <laughs> I'll be calling him immediately. Um, but I was really struck by the fact that he bothered to call, yep. the fact that he showed such empathy, and the fact that clearly his own life experience has – and you see it when he meets people, when he met the people who'd lost uh, their kids at Sandy Hook. And I remember Joe Biden meeting him. It was it, he just had a natural empathy yep. with people who'd suffered tragedy. And I think America has gone through its toughest year for many, many, many decades. And in Biden, they might have somebody who can actually calm everything down, be a unifying force as best anyone can be in polarized America, but also give the country 
empathy when they most need it. I think it's fascinating. And you couldn't get a more diametrically opposed, no. um, you know, empathetic and unempathetic two candidates. I mean, you couldn't even write it, could you? You couldn't. I mean, they're completely different, except they both have a street fighting side to them. Biden's a tough guy. Yeah. And I don't think he'd be cowed by Trump. Uh, and Biden's not as unpopular in middle America as Hillary was. You know, the sort of white collar. Yeah, Hillary lost argument. it. Trump yeah. didn't win it. Hillary lost it. That's correct. Fact, you know, it? I, I, that's, the polls at the moment, we could end up with a landslide for Biden. The polls are that far apart. But the polls were completely wrong in America last time. And there's a lot of people in America, when I talk to them, surprising people who say, you know, I wouldn't say this publicly, but I, I vote Trump. So, so do you think, um, because there's consp loads of conspiracy theories, um, I've got a question. Let's go, I'll jump to the big question about those. Okay, so you have worked and been surrounded by and been on the same platforms as of over here and also especially in the US as major conspiracy theorists, people who have made millions mm. out of barking bonkers mad conspiracy theories. Which is the most extreme conspiracy theory you you heard about which you think might be true? <laughs> well, we're in an era, aren't we, where it's actually getting increasingly hard to know what the truth is yeah. because the conspiracy theorists are so well organised and, and you can now cheat any video you can cheat any documents you know we're now into a fake news world from which there will probably be no escape because the technology that's available to fake stuff is now so good um i don't know i used to joke about you know you'd find shergar with lord lucan on the moon and now i'm not so sure it's a joke <laughs> that's a good answer you either go for a real answer or the most extreme non-answer you can go with that i'm happy with either and thank you for the latter um do you think that trump was really considering ripping off his shirt to reveal a Superman. Absolutely. And actually, I wish he'd done it. <laughs> so do I. It would have been so an amazing would have been an amazing moment. I mean, Trump, you know, to this is where I you have to have an, a, a grudging admiration, even if you hate him, which is the way he dealt with getting the virus, which obviously must have been for at least a day and a half, a very scary moment for Trump. Especially for him. He's yeah. in his 70s, he's he's obese. And he leads a pretty, you know, unhealthy life. Yeah. And he suddenly got a killer virus he knows has killed some of his best friends. A couple of New York tycoons died of the virus in the first wave. He was scared. No question. There's a, there's a big piece appeared in New York magazine about how am I going to be one of the dyers, he called it. So he would have been through that. And yet there he is, you know, four or five days later, bouncing off the walls, making his sort of movie return with the dramatic music and stuff. And he's doing it because he knows he's in a dogfight to save his presidency. And you've got to, at some level, admire the resilience of that guy and the fact he just does just... You know, part of the, the stuff I talk about in the book is that I do feel with kids now at school, we cover them in such cotton wool and everyone gets a participation prize even if they come last. And... Trump's generation. No, cla no clapping. No clapping and all that kind of thing. You can't clap at, at universities, student unions, because you trigger people's anxiety. That in itself <laughs> triggers my anxiety. <laughs> um, you just changed the expression. Yeah. His face, his face went red. <laughs> all right, now you're getting me going. Don't even get me onto Google. Okay. I wasn't so I, even I started, trying. I was, I, was, I was talking to someone else and I said, you know, they said, of all the things, what's got you most annoyed? I went, well, obviously, radical <laughs> feminists trying to make James Bond a woman. Right. That sent me 
nearly off the dial. I said, obviously, vegan sausage rolls, the fact that I complained about them and the whole world goes nuts <laughs> is nuts because nobody actually likes vegan sausage rolls. I, I, love, said, I love them. All right, I don't believe anyone that says that. I okay. think it's a virtue-signaling load of nonsense. No, they I taste don't. like rubbish. And by the way, they, they, have they, more taste, they have more calories in them than a McDonald's cheeseburger. Can't argue with that necessarily because you don't know that. But the, <laughs> I, think, I, think be, I think the story... All right, but what about this? Okay, so go the one that really got me... Go on. Actually, there was another one, which was Altrincham School for Girls decided to ban the word girl. Yeah. So no one was allowed to be called a girl, even though 99% of them were girls. And, and more so. And this was to appease the transgender yeah. uh, activists, but the title of the school remained Altrincham School for Girls. But yeah. the one that actually really got... Well, <laughs> Justin Trudeau, right, the, the Prime Minister of, of Canada, when he said that he wanted the word mankind changed to people kind, and I then thought of you know, Neil Armstrong on the moon, one small step for a person, one giant leap for people kind kind of kills the mood right yeah. uh, but the real one was google with its salad emoji so google <laughs> had a salad emoji and after a campaign by radical vegans yeah. they removed the egg because it offended radical vegans at which point i said well what about me i love eggs yeah most of us love eggs it's one of the biggest selling things in this country people love them they're nutritious they actually help you be healthy where are my rights to not have Google remove the egg from the salad emoji? Why are my rights deemed less important than the radical vegans who are offended by it? Why is my offence at the removal of the egg not deemed on the same level as their offence? That I haven't had a good answer to. Why does that bother you so much? Right, because you, cause you because say, what I feel is I feel that I feel that it comes down does it, to does this. it really bother you that much? Uh, not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's leave because I've got so many more questions. In in the book, you say you know I have and quote unquote I have strong opinions about almost everything. And I read that and I thought that's, there's so much in there. I have strong opinions about almost everything. It's such an interesting sentence. That the the all-encompassing thing that I do feel strongly about, it's not the individual stuff like papooses or vegan sausage rolls or, <laughs> or salad emojis, but collectively yeah. what it's about is freedom of speech right. and who has actually more rights to their ability to feel offended by something. And when does the offence you know, explosion, which has gone on, and companies responding to it and panicking and firing people and publishers getting rid of authors because they dare to support J.K. Rowling, who just has an opinion about wanting to support women's rights and is concerned about transgender rights and so on. At what point can we, can we actually say enough of this? Enough of the cancel culture. We're going to stop ruining people for having an opinion. We're actually just going to do what you and I are doing, debating and talking about stuff and agreeing on something and disagreeing on other things, that is what Britain was made on. And I, is, I think we've got it from America. And the fact that universities now are no platforming, the students are no platforming, anyone that doesn't sign up to the woke kind of worldview, very narrow, sort of very intense, narrow view of the world, the fact that anyone even vaguely conservative is now banned from most universities, they're no platform. The fact they invite them so they can uninvite them. You know, Amber Rudd, who was a former Home Secretary and a real trailblazing woman, she made a very big mistake over Windrush and deserved to lose her job, but she's still a trailblazing woman who got to one of the highest pillars of, of state in the country. And uh, I think it was Oxford University invited her to come and speak about women's rights and women uh, issues. Nothing to do with Windrush. 
they invited her, they set it up, they have everyone coming, and at the last minute they cancel her, hours before she's due to come. And they do that just to make a point. Look at us. Aren't we being brilliantly woke? Mm. We're alert. Well, not really, because you invited her to speak in the first place. And actually, she wasn't coming to talk about the thing she lost her job for, she got cancelled for. She's coming to talk about something where you could really learn something. And uh, that kind of stuff at universities is it's in, it's nonsensical. It's also antithetical to what a university should be. Barack Obama, who's a woke hero, is actually not that woke himself when it comes to this stuff. He thinks that universities that do this kind of thing are, are literally doing the opposite to what a learning educational atmosphere at universities should be about. So um, is this is this your shtick now for a bit? Because you were you were a showbiz editor, yeah, journalist. Yes. Um, what did you want to be as a kid? Journalist, journalist. Okay. Six, yeah. okay, so that's 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 your real vertebrae. That's your. I, I consider everything I do through the prism of being a journalist. Right. Even okay. when I was judging talent shows, yeah. I saw it as you know. <laughs> again, you know, when you're a newspaper editor, especially a tabloid, yeah. you're always looking for fresh talent to promote. So in a way, that's why Simon Cowell put me on it because right. he said, "Well, you've got that natural instinct for what people may like." A tabloid editor, that's his daily job. What are people going to like, get into, what are going to follow? Your career is beautifully episodic, right? It's, na- yes. it's naturally episodic. It's become that. And right? normally involves massive crashing and burning. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's the roller coaster. I, but I quite enjoy those times. Yeah, you're, you're not a log flume. You're a roller coaster guy. Yeah. That's the deal, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and, so, and by well, the way, I'm hearing this from the master. Well, well yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's why. But that's why we can have this conversation. Yeah. And so, you know, it's more. It's more <laughs> we played tennis. I talked about it before. I that did was, beat you. I beat that, you that quite was a, badly. That was, I don't worry, I fessed up. It was a bad, bad day for me. Did you tell them who the umpire was? Uh, I can't remember. Did he David Hamilton? I was, yeah. <laughs> he was so small. He's so small, when he walks towards you, he doesn't get any bigger. We anyway. did the R. Lee, Sonny Liston picture after with yeah. me standing I t- I've over told you, you I've, I've said all this it took today. You while I Thanks to for say. listening, by the way, between seven and eight. I said all this. <laughs> the worst bit about it was the picture. It was That's the picture. <laughs> oh, no. And then we went out for lunch and it got a little bit better. Uh, but um, So if your career is episodic, naturally, you know, it's a career of evolution development. It has a lot of foundation in it. You know, it's not, it, it can appear frothy, but it's not frothy at all. You, you know, you're very much in the deep end. And you also have that sort of well to draw from. What do you think might happen next? Because, you know, you've become so successful at this bit. You know, it might be too successful for, for, for your, the Morgan epic to get to the next bit. And I, I can't wait for the next bit. Well, you're missing one fundamental uh, ongoing situation. Daniel Craig hasn't been replaced yet. And there's been <laughs> Pierce Brosnan. Why should there not be? 007 Morgan. Because you have have Rupert Morgan, who's your far more handsome, fitter, like the brother. We know all about him, let me tell you. Yeah, that's completely true. And he will love you for that, by the way, because he does does listen to you rather than watch me. Um, So good morning, bro. Um, I I think that uh, it's a good question. Oddly, I've never really, other than wanting to be a journalist and then an editor, yeah. I'd never had any ambition to do any of the other things I've stumbled into. I didn't imagine I'd ever be a talent show judge. It was entirely... Well, who does, by the way? Right, I mean, right. Yeah. And it was great. It was entirely down to Simon Cowell. I never thought I'd end up winning a reality show with the now President of the United States as the guy that decides the winner. Um, I'd never thought I'd end up doing a nightly show airing on CNN in 160 countries in the world. I mean, replacing Larry King. I mean... I never thought, I definitely never thought I'd do breakfast TV. In fact, when they first suggested it as come in for a week, I thought they were nuts. Susanna Reid thought it was the worst thing she'd ever heard. Um, and I'm not entirely sure she's, <laughs> not entirely sure she's been dissuaded of that view ever since. Um, so I think, I think it's five years, you know. It's five years in two weeks. It doesn't seem it. 
No. Maybe for her. No, I think it feels like 55 for her. But um, but I never thought I'd do that. And yet, oddly... Um, it's a sweet gig, though, Monday through Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. And I and actually, I give it full throttle, and I love it. I never thought I'd do, you know, columns, uh, as I do in the way that I do twice a week about all sorts of very important issues your around are, the world. Your columns are fantastic. Oh, thank you. They really are fantastic. They're so interesting. They're so they're so tight. It's a really tight column you've got going on. What do you... What do, you do you feel the change? Do you feel... Because you seem to be... You've been so incendiary, right? You know, intentionally or not intentionally. And by the way, that's not a judgment. It's just an observation, you know. And we're in Britain, you know. And Britain is little Britain. It just is, you know. And I think one of the reasons from watching you um, and just just having to think about analysing, you know, what's what's been going on with you, just because I know you and I'm interested in the business, because you operated in America and you lived in America, it's a whole different ballgame. And coming back here is like going, living your life in reverse. It's like going back to little league. Here's the difference. On that and why I prefer it here. I, can I just finish? Because yeah, sorry, because yeah. that wasn't that wasn't going to be the question. But oh. please, please feel free. I think you know when I lived in America, you come back here. It's like you know the SAS. You know, train hard, fight easy. You come back here, and everybody watching Good Morning Britain or, or watching watching your tweets or reading your content, this is crazy. But it's not it's in America. This mm. is child's play. Yeah, and so in a way, I don't even know what I'm going to. I'm trying to say, but it mm. just coming back here. It's. I don't know. It's, it just seems easier to it, me. It, the difference to me, I, I don't think it's easy at all. I think the difference... Easier. Uh, maybe. I mean, the thing I found about America was, there I was doing this show at CNN where I would I interviewed presidents. I interviewed the biggest stars in the world. Yeah. I had an amazing time, covered incredible stories, you know, Bin Laden being killed to the, the Arab Spring. I mean, covering that at CNN was an amazing experience. Um, but what I realised over time was nobody I really cared about ever watched it. None of my family could see it. Very few friends of mine ever saw any episodes. I might get one or two when they came to LA, might watch it. So you're doing something which is amazing. I, I was being very well paid for it. I was living the life of apparent Riley in New York and LA and everything. Um, but actually, I had no connection to my hinterland, to, to what I really, what's in my DNA. And when I came back and started doing the morning show, I suddenly, I'm back in my local cafe and everyone's talking to me about the show about football that I like, not yep. the American version, about cricket, about arguing about very British issues. And I realised that I loved that interaction with the British public far more than I'd ever had that in America. So even though America, yeah, it's a massive stage, but even when I was doing America's Got Talent, it was the biggest show on television in America, number one for years, for the six years I did it, always number one in the ratings. You could still walk around and not many people recognise you because of the scale of America. So even a show getting 20 million viewers, there are 320 million Americans. Yeah, so it's so big. You can still be relatively anonymous. Whereas if you do, even a morning show like Good Morning Britain, if I walk around now, if I walk down my high street, I'll have six or seven conversations. Always funny. You get the cab drivers shouting stuff out. You're much more part of a cultural zeitgeist, and it's the culture that you come from, yeah. and you understand it. So I actually enjoy the morning show more than I ever enjoyed, actually, CNN or America's Got Talent. But for that reason. So you might be there a while then, by the sounds of it. Well, I'm definitely there till the end of next year. I've got a contract to the end of 2021. Who the hell knows in this in this environment what's going to happen because after that? Because, you know, that? I know you've had the conversations. They would love you here. Everybody would love me. Time's right. <laughs> no, but also, I think you'd be really good on it, Piers. On radio? Yeah, well, I've watched you, and, I, you know, you're a very, very good template for somebody who was brilliant on television and then just took a view to go radio 
and then mastered it because you're a master of talk, actually. I'm not at your level of this, of being able to do what you do. Not doing badly. No, but it's a different discipline. And it's I like TV. Apart from everything else, I have a stupendous ego, so obviously I like being you know, recognised and all the tram- trimmings <laughs> that come with it. Radio is a real art form, I think, and I think those that I really love to do it well, and no smoke, you are one of the best, um, it's a real art form, and you've got to be ready to do that and to commit to it. And I wouldn't want to be doing too many other things. At the moment, I do my life story show. I do crime yeah, documentaries. You do, you do a lot. You do I a do lot the more columns. Than, yeah. I do, you know, to actually do radio properly, properly. you've got to you've got yeah. to commit to it. Yeah, and also, you know, because we started podcasting recently, we did a load of podcasts last week, and straight away they started to impinge upon mm. the energy for the show. Now we we're over that because we've done we did a load at the beginning, and we're going to. I mean, if I lose my looks. And we're away, away. It's never going to happen. Then I'll be a. I'll how be a how can you be that good looking with only one head, Piers Morgan? It's quite incredible. Um, what about because I said to Rebecca, the chief maker here, I said, "Yeah, get Piers Saturday mornings. You know, I'll get Clarks and you know, um, you know, because because I always think because I'm stupid. You know, he does Monday through Wednesday on the telly. He does his mail column, and that's it. But of course, you just said two other things, and you got a family, and you got interests, and all I this have kind a, of stuff. I mean, incredibly busy, really, because I, life stories. I've just been doing eight of those over the weekends, which I would normally have off the crime docs I mean I fly to America and spend time in Florida Texas that's all very time consuming and you get the jet lag I do three columns a week for the mail one for the mail on Sunday two for the the dailymail.com so I'm you know I'm it's a it's a big portfolio of stuff. No, you've got you're busy enough. I get it yeah. completely. Um, a couple of more things before you go. By the way, I could talk to you all day. Obviously, um, Florida and Sweden, mm. right? Apparently, Florida's completely unlocked now. Mm. You know that you can go and play. Pretty you, much, yeah. you can play an arena show in Florida tomorrow. Yeah, you can go and book an arena for ten thousand people, no mass. You can play Florida. Um, Sweden, we know, has um, has sort of never locked down. Uh, watch to watch. What are you hearing about those two? Well, Florida situations? is just reckless, and their infection rates are soaring as they are in most states in America. America is pretty much out of control. The guy there I listen to is Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's the world expert really in infectious disease and certainly number one in America. And he's extremely concerned about what's happening there. Trump has, is banking on winning the election by looking like the guy who wants to open everything up. But in doing so, by the president taking that stance, especially in the Republican states, they're all ignoring the rules and the death rates are rocketing. I mean, 220,000 people have died in America. They reckon by the end of the year, given the rate of infection at the moment, that could double. Yeah, you know, you're into apocalyptic numbers if you're not careful. Yeah. Already, more people have died from coronavirus in America than have died in all their wars combined. What I don't understand about that that, that stat, right, is that forty odd thousand people have died here mm. in Britain, but they have six times more people in America. Mm. So you know, um, uh, we're we're at two hundred and forty thousand if you if you do the maths there. So yeah. we're much worse than. But we always talk as if they're much worse than we are. Yeah, I mean, America's death rate actually is not as bad as Britain. Britain so, is spectacularly bad. Is it, who, is, who is higher than us per 100,000? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, Belgium had a worse rate, for example, a worse death rate, and then seemed to be getting on top of things. But Belgium's now going back, I think, into lockdown. I mean, every country's facing the same problem. I look at places like New Zealand and think, well, we were an island too. They just locked down. They just went, we're locking down and then we're going to jump on any cases. And they've done that very effectively. They've got no coronavirus at the moment. China, you know, a city in China, which had 9 million people, this week had a little outbreak of a few cases from a bar. And they tested all 9 million people in five days. That's how you have to get on top of it. But you can only do that if you have the testing regime to do it. And a dictatorship. 
and an authoritarian leadership Authoritar or a leadership led by serious-minded people who understand that is the pathway. I mean, at the moment, you've got a situation where, and I get it, my kids are all, all my boys are 27, 23, 19. One's at university, one's come out of drama school and is an actor, very mm. talented, but there's no acting. Um, the other one's a sports journalist. They're all suffering a lack of the best years of their lives know, disappearing. I know, I know, I know, I know. And it's heartbreaking. Um, and they've all got slightly different views about it. But the overriding view is, and it, it's interesting, Dominic Cummings, when the history comes to judge the British people's response to this pandemic, I think it's impossible to overstate how damaging it was that Boris Johnson stood by his chief advisor, who'd drawn up the rules, who so blatantly broke them, who so blatantly lied about going to a castle to test his eyesight, putting his four-year-old kid in the back. Really? Uh, that's how you test your eyesight? I'm vaguely blind, so I'm going to drive to a castle with my kid in the back? I don't think so. So the fact that it was a, it looked like one rule for them and one rule for us huge damage to public confidence in this government and it's carried on and you're seeing it with other politicians the SNP uh, woman Margaret Ferrier who you know just think about what she did for a moment think about the fact that I know people who've not been able to go to loved ones funerals I've got five or six people I know who've lost their parents to the coronavirus and they've had to have some of them funerals for 10 people and not been invited you know even very close loved ones and friends utterly heartbreaking my dad's best friend died tiny number of people at a very gregarious man's funeral heartbreaking the other day this video came out do you remember of the 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 widow on her own in a little parlor and her two sons yeah. came aside and were literally pulled I, apart I saw it, I saw it. so imagine how they're feeling when they look at the scenes in liverpool which now has the second worst coronavirus rate in europe and the icu doctors in liverpool are now tweeting openly we're getting overrun and you see the scenes of the kind of a thousand two thousand people in a in a drunken party mode mob attacking police cars and just having the time of their lives i don't know if they're all from liverpool i was told a lot maybe students i don't care they're young people brazenly ignoring the rules making sure the virus goes ever higher making sure almost certainly we end up in a bigger lockdown and i simply say to people look yo we can blame the government as i've done repeatedly for cack-handed decisions u-turn after u-turn all that kind of thing but at some point, personal accountability also matters. We've all got to look at ourselves. You know, I would, you know, my parents, my, my dad hasn't left the house really in seven months. Yeah. Um, he's okay. He's got a big garden. He's, uh, but ultimately, it's, it's soul destroying for people. We all know that. So we should all be in this together. And the, one of the themes of the book that I end up with is never mind unity about the culture wars. We've got to try and sort that out. But more importantly, remember what it was like for those two months when we were in lockdown. And we came together and Captain Tom, this guy, was marching up and down, raising 39 million quid, uh, marching in real pain because of all his injuries. And we had uh, a period where we came out every Thursday and we cheered. And I remember the first night. Do you remember that first yeah, night? Yeah, I do, I do. I remember walking out Tears with my everywhere. wife and daughter and we walked out and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Yeah, yeah. This deafening sound all around quite a smart part of West London where I, I've never met half my neighbours, many mm. of them. And there we all were. And we've lost that. Yeah, no, we've and we've lost got it. to get that back. We've got to get it back. You've got to go. Um, I can mm. talk to you all morning because you're going to go on Times Radio now yeah. and talk radio. <laughs> and if I, I think they're going to lock the doors, Piers. They're going to make them, <laughs> you sign that contract that I was talking about earlier on before. Uh, the book is called Wake Up by Piers Morgan. I hope you've enjoyed the last 45 minutes. This is the liberal Piers Morgan. I mean, he starts his book by talking about how he's a liberal 
Not to wind you up, because he is, and I hope that came across in our conversation just now. Just my last question before you go. Um, do you? How many people do you get on GMB thinking, I have more things to say about this than my guest? Um, because I've just got to tell you, it was the opposite for me over the <laughs> oh, last 45 you, minutes. Yeah. I mean, it's, listen, you and I meet a lot of interesting people. I think we have two of the priv- most privileged jobs here, here. imaginable because you can meet anyone from eminent scientists to you know soap stars to whatever, and they always surprise you. And people are interesting. You know, we're all unique in our own little way. People are fascinating. I'm fascinated. Really, what drives me is a fascination with people. And I think you're the same. Good. I can't wait for the next um, chapter of the Piers Morgan story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I won't be watching on Monday, but and hopefully and this is what we said. Because I said, there's another side to Piers and I want to get it across. And I said it on the radio between 7 and 8. And then I said, but I don't want him to come across too nice and too likeable because <laughs> you're going to watch his blimmin' show instead of listening to ours. Because <laughs> a lot of people said, well, we used to watch him, but we can't stand him anymore. So now we're going to you instead. I could have pushed him back in your direction, Piers Morgan. <laughs> Actually, he's horrible. He's, this is all an act. You know what? I prefer that last line because the rest of it's quite brand damaging. Yeah, sorry. can only apologise. <laughs> I'll see you in court. Thank you, Piers. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. So there you go. Piers Morgan. A how-to-wow pop-up episode. Surprised? Many people were. And today's show has been brought to you by Athletic Greens. Go to athleticgreens.com slash howtowow now. And if you do input the howtowow, bit of that URL, you'll get a free year's supply of vitamin D and five travel-free sachets today. That's their special offer to you by us. athleticgreens.com slash howtowow. Have a great one. See you next time. Ta-da.